Glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're in our third week together uh, studying a series. We're, we're going through a series called God Who Sends. And we're looking at the very sending nature of our God. See, God, every time, first he calls someone to himself. And then the next thing that he does is he sends them on mission. So if you've been called to Jesus Christ in saving faith, then the very next thing for you is to be sent on mission. And it's not one of those things where it's, well, you might be sent and you, you might be someone who he chooses to send. No, you're someone who, in fact, he has sent. It's not a choice, it's a reality if you're a follower of Jesus. The only choice is, will you go? And will you live as a missionary to the place that he's sent you? That's the choice. Will you be obedient? And this morning, we see a guy in Nehemiah who was absolutely obedient to God in that. After God had called him to faith, after Nehemiah trusted God, he was then sent by Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at the sending of Nehemiah. The sending of Nehemiah. Now, do you know about Nehemiah? You've heard the name, right? You've probably heard the name, but I'll bet not many of us, if we're honest, just because we're maybe not as literate, literate with the Bible as we ought to be, we don't know maybe the story right off the top of our head of who Nehemiah was. But Nehemiah is one of the most fascinating guys in the Old Testament, and quite honestly, he's one of my favorites. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Nehemiah. It'd be about a quarter of the way through your Bible uh, from the left-hand side, maybe about a third of the way. And if you see the Psalms, go to the left, you'll find them. And uh, we'll start in chapter one, but let me pray. And then we'll jump into the book of Nehemiah. Father, thanks for Jesus. And thank you that uh, he doesn't quit after he calls us to you to saving faith, but then he takes us and he sends us on mission. Thank you that you've sent me. Thank you that I get to be like Jesus in that way. Being one who gets to go and proclaim your word and reach people with the gospel. Father, thanks that as a church, we're sent. Um, Remind us of that fact this morning and this month as we we launch into a new year. I think um, many of us are tired, shifting schedules this week, and uh, it's a whole new routine for many families, and uh, so I pray your grace to them. But as we switch routines and we get into the start, really, of a new year, um, remind us of the fact that we get new opportunities, new opportunities of people to uh, interact with and to love and to care for and to represent you to. So give us that grace. Remind us as we look at some observations of Nehemiah's uh, story that that it might become true even of our own story as well as we live out uh, the task you've given us to make disciples in the places we've been sent. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd work through me and in me. Teach me even as I teach. And I thank you that you forgive me and uh, that you choose to use someone broken like me to proclaim your word. I pray against the enemy. Uh, He would accuse us with your word. He would tempt us and uh, uh, tell us that we never measure up. And the truth is we don't. But the other truth is that because of Jesus, we do. So I I pray against him. The enemy is servants their works and effects. And instead, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts and change us and motivate us as only you can to live on mission. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Really, before we get into the book of Nehemiah, we got to tell you the backstory. Because to really comprehend what we're, what we're doing here and where we're going this morning, you need to know the whole story leading up to it. So do you remember a few, few weeks ago, we're going to start not at the very beginning, but pretty close. We're going to start with a guy by the name of Abraham. Do you remember him a couple weeks ago? We talked about the sending of Abraham, how God called Abram. Uh, promised him that he would make his family a great nation, a multitude, that whoever blessed him would be blessed and that God would bless all the nations through him. And we saw how he was called by God and then sent. So the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country. See, he sends him right away. And your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those, God says, who bless you and who, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So the Lord calls Abraham to proclaim his name among all the nations. He sends him out. And as a father of a future nation, dedicated to the Lord, Abraham is blessed with these great promises to be inherited by grace through faith. We learn that, that all of Abraham's uh, favor that he received wasn't his own. It was simply God's grace to him. And he attained it in the same way we do, by faith in the living God. And ultimately for us, by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, famine strikes the earth. See, this family of blessing had grown to 12 sons from Abram. And when famine struck the earth, God protects his people by sheltering them in the land of Egypt, a land previously prepared by God's wise providence. The people of Israel settle in the land. They go to Egypt. They enjoy a period of peace and prosperity. But eventually, they outgrow their welcome in Egypt. And 400 years later, by 400 years later, they've been enslaved by the Egyptians. But God's still faithful because he had made a promise to Abraham. And how many of God's promises does he keep? Everyone. He's yet to break one. By my watch, he keeps every promise that he makes. So as the nation cries out while they're in slavery in Egypt, the Lord hears their cries. And and faithfully and compassionately, he raises up this guy by the name of Moses, right? And, and Moses is raised up. He's saved miraculously. Uh, you can read that story in Exodus. But then he gets raised up by God and he's ordained by God. He's sent by God to go and rescue his people. He's sent on mission right after God calls him at the burning bush. What's he do? He sends him because that's what our God does. He sends those who he calls so, so God uses Moses to go and perplex and work wonder upon wonder and perplex Pharaoh and overthrow him. And the people are ransomed from slavery. They pass through the Red Sea on dry land and they get out into the wilderness as God swallows their enemies behind them in the sea. And the Lord brings them all the way to a mountain, to the same mountain that he had called Moses on, Mount Sinai. And when they get there, God gives them some rules because what's God doing? He's taking them from slavery and Egypt and he's going to take them up into the land that he had promised hundreds of years ago to their ancestor, Abraham. But he makes a pit stop on the way at Mount Sinai and he says, I'm going to renew my covenant with you. And uh, here's the deal. Now, when you get into the land, obey these rules, obey these laws. I'll be, my, I'll be your God. You'll be my people and I'll be with you. I'll dwell in your midst. And as long as you obey these commands, it is going to go so good for you. But if you disobey them, watch out. My judgment will come. Well, rather than trust, even in the midst of seeing a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and the fire of God's glory on the mount, on Mount Sinai, they choose to rebel against him. And rather than trust, you know what they do? They mumble, they mumble, and they mumble, and they grumble, and they grumble, and they groan, and they moan, even in the middle of God providing food for them in a miraculous way, and providing water for them out of a rock in a miraculous way. They grumble and complain and whine and complain and... Cause Moses all kinds of heartache as their leader. And so, okay, well, I, I told you what's going to happen. God says, if you obey my commands, it's going to go well. If you don't, there's going to be discipline. So what happens? There's discipline. And for 40 years, they spend 40 years in the wilderness until the next generation comes. And then you get to Deuteronomy and God renews that covenant again to remind this new generation who maybe hadn't heard it the first time, what the provisions are going into the land. And so they go in this time, and a guy by the name of Joshua leads them in. And over time, they conquer most of their enemies, but they leave many there that they were told to wipe out. And after a while then, these enemies become a thorn in their side, and God rules in their midst. But the nation, which was called to be distinct, wasn't very distinct from the other nations. And they reject the rule of the Lord in because they want a king just like everybody else. So what's God do? Well, then he gives them a king. They've made it into the promised land. They, they want a king like the other people there. So God gives them a king. And the king that he picks out first is a big, strong, beautiful man by the name of Saul. That's how he's described. He was head and shoulders above the rest. He was uh, a good looking guy. He was strong. Everything you would picture in a Disney king, 
That was Saul. I mean, he looked animated probably. He was so good. But what happens? Well, his character didn't match his outward appearance. And over time, Saul falls. And so instead, God gives them a new king with a poet's heart and a shepherd's staff and a heart after God. And under David, the kingdom is secured and it's united. And King David proves faithful, but he too is flawed. He's not perfect either. Well, his son Solomon inherits the kingdom then in a time of peace and harmony. And he builds the temple where God's presence would dwell among his own people. And after Solomon dies, though, chaos ensues. Solomon, the wisest guy in all of history other than Jesus, after he dies, chaos ensues. And what happens is the people begin to rebel against God again. And in 586 BC, Jerusalem, or excuse me, back up in 722 BC, God brings judgment because remember the promise he told Moses, he said, if you you obey these commands, it'll go well. If you don't, I'll bring discipline. So they don't obey him and he brings discipline. And the Assyrians come in in 722 BC and wipe out the 12 Northern tribes, which are often referred to as the tribes of Israel at that time, because the kingdom had become divided and The 10 tribes of Israel are carried off into exile. We'll wait a couple hundred years. And in 586 BC, all of Jerusalem is absolutely sacked, not by the Assyrians, but go a little farther south into Iraq. The Babylonians come in and they wipe them out and they take them all back in in a couple waves and, and make them exiles out of their land. They destroy their city. They destroy the temple. And we get to towards the end of the Old Testament and God's people are in captivity. What happened to God's promise of giving them this land and of giving Abraham an inheritance? Well, the book of Second Chronicles ends with a little bit of hope. It says, now in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, because after they were carried off by the Babylons, the Persians come in, you're getting a history lesson today. The Persians come in and wipe out the Babylonians. And it says at the end of Second Chronicles, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And he put it in writing. Thus says, the, says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, remember those who are in captivity under King Cyrus, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Well, at the end of Second Chronicles, then the book of Ezra picks up where it left off. And a guy by the name of Ezra, a faithful man, a priest, and a scribe, he, he leads the first wave of people back to the promised land. And remember what had happened hundreds of years earlier, a little over 100 years earlier, or no, actually 70 years earlier at this point, excuse me. 70 years earlier, the the Babylonians had come in and done what to the temple? They wiped it out. They completely destroyed it. So Ezra, who has a heart for God, goes back and starts rebuilding the temple. Well, fast forward 13 years, and now we're at the book of Nehemiah. There's a group of people with Ezra rebuilding the temple, but Nehemiah is still back in the courts of the king of Persia. And that's where we're at this morning. And in fact, Ezra and Nehemiah and some Hebrew manuscripts were, are just one big book. It's believed that Ezra wrote both of them, borrowing from some of Nehemiah's manuscripts. So with that incredibly long introduction, so that you're up to speed, we're going to pick up in Nehemiah. And we're going to begin right at the beginning of Nehemiah in chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to see how God sends him. And remember, whoever God calls, he calls him and then he sends him. We don't see how God calls Nehemiah, how how Nehemiah comes to faith in God. But we do see how Nehemiah is sent by God. And so this morning, as we read, we're going to notice five observations. Some related, some maybe a little distant. But five different things that I want you to see and consider for yourself in the way that Nehemiah was sent by God. And how he also is sending and has sent you. Now, because most of this is kind of narrative, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. So if you've got a copy of the Bible in the pew, that's ESV. You can still read along. You'll be able to follow pretty well. Normally, we read it out of ESV. Sometimes people ask me, hey, what's the best translation to use, Josh? I like to say, well, whichever one you'll read. (laughs) That's a good one. 
So if, if you'll read it, open it up. But we're going to be in New Living Translation. It starts out like this. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev. See, one thing I like about the New Living Translation is it'll expound a little bit on some things. In the ESV, you just see the month, but it doesn't tell you what time of year that is. That's a month that they would have used, but not us. So for us, this is November, December. So it says late autumn. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, so it's a new king now, Nehemiah says, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with other men, with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. Remember, there were people who 13 years earlier had been sent to Judah, sent to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple with Ezra. I asked them about the Jews who had returned from there, who, who had returned there from captivity, and about how things were going in Jerusalem. We get to verse 3. They said to me, Things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. See, the wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. In that day, for your city to be safe, there needed to be a wall around it. Cities were often built on the top of hills or on the top of mountains for protection. And the first line of defense for your city was this wall. And many times the farmers and peasants would live around the outside of the city. But when trouble came, guess where everybody went? They rushed inside the wall. And they rushed in and that's where they found safety. That's where they found refuge. That's why the idea of the Lord being a refuge to his people was so strong throughout the Old Testament. And they would run into the city inside the walls. And Except in this case, they started rebuilding the temple. But there's nothing really to protect it because all the walls had been destroyed and they were really vulnerable. And we're going to see later they're in the midst of a people who didn't worship their God and who didn't uh, offer them the grace that God did. And in fact, they, they would persecute them and they'd face great opposition. Well, Nehemiah says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Remember, he's he's referencing here what God had promised to Moses. If, if If you keep my commands, things will go well for you. If you don't, there'll be discipline. Moses, or Nehemiah prays, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Verse six, look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess we've sinned against you. In other words, I can, we deserve nothing but your punishment. Yes, even my own family and I, Nehemiah says, have sinned. We've sinned terribly by not obeying the commands and decrees and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. But please remember what you told your servant Moses. In other words, please remember what else you told him. That if you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But, verse 9, if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth. I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. Our God's a God of second chances. That those who would, who would repent and turn back to him, even after failure, he offers restoration. And this isn't something new with Jesus. This is his character, even in the Old Testament. Verse 10, the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand, they're your servants. Oh, Lord, Nehemiah prays, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. Nehemiah had some commentary. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. You're like, okay, Josh, I thought Nehemiah was sent. Well, he is. We're going to see that in a second. But you know what's more important? Before he was sent on mission and what influenced his obedience to that mission 
is the fact that Nehemiah first had his heart focused on God. First of all, Nehemiah's heart was focused on God. It was focused on God's heart and on God's ways and on God's priorities. It begins with him having a heart for God and for God's people. The story doesn't begin like we might think the story of a hero would begin of of somebody with this great desire to accomplish something great, right? And it's not this guy with incredible ambition to just do something for God. It begins with a, a guy by the name of Nehemiah who simply loves God. And he loves what God loves. He loves God's people. The truth of the matter is that if you're sent on mission, and it's not if, you are, when you go, when you obey, if your heart isn't first submitted to God and in love with him and in love with his ways, your ministry will be a failure. And it's the same for me. Any successful ministry or mission, it begins with a heart and ultimately with the church, with hearts, plural, submitted to God, submitted to Jesus. But oftentimes, we're more enthralled with doing something for God than we are with God himself. Are you more enthralled with God or with doing something for him? If you find your heart is more driven towards accomplishing something, be sure to check your pulse and find out where's your heart simply for God himself. What if you get nothing else for the rest of your life but him? Is that enough? Do you love him. Nehemiah was a guy who first his heart was committed to Jesus. First his heart was committed to his God and loving the things that God loved. But many people, I've already said it, and quite honestly, many pastors and many people, especially men, because we tend to be more driven, but it's not exclusively men. We get more encapsulated and more enthralled with accomplishing something and doing something than we do with the God who ought to motivate it and be behind it to begin with. And we get so focused on, on doing rather than being, especially guys with strong personalities. Their, their focus, my focus sometimes, it can be simply on accomplishing a task. Does anybody relate to this? Like you just go and you just go to accomplish a task and sometimes you can leave everybody else in your tracks, like your tire tracks. <laughs> and you can run over people. And they lose sight, people who get focused on a task, they lose sight of the reason for it. I mean, if you ask them, oh, I'm, I'm doing this because it's ministry and because that's what I'm supposed to do and I love God. And okay, yeah, but, but you can see your heart, really? I mean, come on, be honest. Examine, your, I can't see it. Examine your heart. They lose sight of the reason for it and they lose sight even sometimes of the God they're serving in it. And our identity sometimes can get wrapped up in just doing things and in our activity rather than in our identity in Christ and being a follower of him. Now the truth is though, the flip side can be true too, right? Sometimes people can get wrapped up in not doing anything and in not changing. This is called comfort. (laughs) I like it the way it is, thank you. Things are going pretty good. It's pretty smooth. Don't rock the boat. Don't ruin my world. I like it the way it is. It's the same thing. It's not being enthralled with Jesus Christ first. See, those people would say, well, things are going really good. We're doing good things. I'm comfortable. So don't change anything. We all fall into that trap too, don't we? But the reality is, if in both cases, it's a heart either driven toward action or driven toward safety. The root issue is the same. It's a symptom of a heart that's not engaged first with God, not first engaged with Jesus. So let me ask you on this first observation, ask yourself, is my heart focused on Jesus first? See, if your heart is engaged with Jesus first, you're motivated to accomplish things with even greater passion. And then you accomplish them without burning out because it's not in your own strength. It's in the strength of Jesus who's given you the task. And he's the one who comes alongside you with the yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He pulls the cart with you. And it's not your own strength. Some examples, maybe serving. You serve behind the scenes. 
But don't do it just because oh, I signed up and I have to. See, we get in that rut. Does anybody else get in that rut? There's Sunday mornings. I'm just going to be brutally honest with you. I hope this is okay. As your pastor, if you lose respect for me, I'm sorry. This is just true. There's Sunday mornings. I wake up and I go, I kind of wish I could sleep in today. I wish I could go to another church today. I just don't feel like going and doing it. But I have to. And you know what? Most of the time, those days are days when either there's just some big burden on my heart or it's a day where, in a week where my heart hasn't been first engaged with Jesus. Do you resonate with that? Do you have that experience? When, you're, when your heart is focused on Jesus, serving isn't just to accomplish a task. It's to see people meet Jesus. Ministries aren't just to, to have something to do. Oh, we ought to have a men's ministry. We ought to have a women's ministry. Why? Because I don't have anything to do tomorrow night and I'd like to do something. No, it's to see people meet and grow to know Jesus. Likewise, if your heart is first engaged with Jesus, on the flip side of this, you know, if you're, you have a tendency to just not want change and not want to rock the boat. The truth is, if, if, if our hearts are engaged with Jesus, you can't, in good conscience, stay safe and never change. Think about it, honestly. Be honest with yourself here. You don't have to be honest with me even right now. Be honest with yourself, though, and with your own heart. If you're really engaged with Jesus, the truth of the matter is you cannot, with good conscience, just say, let's leave it alone. Let's never change. Let's never touch it because I'm comfortable. That's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? Because a heart engaged with Jesus loves what Jesus loves. And like Nehemiah looks and sees there's a mission to accomplish Who's going to go? I better go. That's what Isaiah did, and that's what we see Nehemiah doing. You know, that can be our service style. Sometimes it's going to change our programming. Sometimes it's got to change to reach people. Uh, Our facilities, sometimes they've got to change. Because things change, and our ministries change, and we want to be as effective as we can in reaching people for Jesus with the gospel. Amen? Amen? Well, here's a second observation that's tied directly to the first. Nehemiah's heart for God motivated his ministry. His heart for God is what motivated his ministry. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan. So we've, we've transitioned. We've gone from late autumn to early spring. And in, so, so four months after Nehemiah had first started praying and had first heard the report and had first been broken and first started fasting and first started seeking the Lord, four months, uh, he was patient, wasn't he? He was incredibly, I wonder what he did during that time. Did he just wait? Did he keep praying? Did he keep fasting? I bet he did. Well, now during the 20th year of, of King Artaxerxes' reign, same, same year, just a few months later, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Remember, Nehemiah is the cupbearer. He's the guy who would, who would test the food to make sure it wasn't poisoned. My dad used to do that with us when we were little if we had ice cream. Let me test it. Make sure it's not poisoned. <laughs> that was Nehemiah. That was his job. He was the first line of defense in that way. He would also help guard the court. He was, a, he was a trusted guy with the king. Well, he was serving the king his wine, he says. And then he adds this commentary. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then Nehemiah says, I was terrified. Why was he terrified? He's terrified, I believe, for one of two reasons, or one reason, but two possibilities as to why this could be. I think he's terrified because his sadness might offend the king or what he's about to request of the king might show him or come across as him being disloyal to the king. Because we read at the end of chapter 1 that Nehemiah asks God to give him favor with the king. Because Nehemiah, after praying, after fasting, after mourning, he's decided, I've got to be the one to go. I've got to help rebuild the walls. I've got to help 
God's people in Jerusalem, I've got to go. My only way to go, though, is if the king will send me. So I've got to ask him. And he's about to make a request of him in a subtle way, but in a way that could totally ruin his relationship with the king and and that could make him be seen as disloyal to the king, as loyal to another kingdom in another land. And he could no longer be trusted then as a cupbearer to test the wine and to test the food. Maybe he would poison it to ensure his kingdom ruled. But Nehemiah was terrified and he replied, long live the king. Long live the king. He didn't want to let him even dwell for a second on that possibility. How can I not be sad though? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. There may have been more to the conversation, but from what we have here, the king asks, well, how can I help you? So Nehemiah with a, he writes with a prayer to the God of heaven. Now he's standing in his presence. They're having a conversation. Do you think Nehemiah just ducked out and said, I'll be right back. And he takes off and he prays and then he comes back in. Well, here's what you could do. No, I, I think in the moment, you ever been in the moment like that? Something happens and you don't know what to say. So you just pray even under your breath. Holy Spirit, help me. Give me the words to speak. In fact, you know, Jesus promises to do that for you. He promises the spirit will do that for you and not to worry about and not to contemplate the words that you're going to speak when you face opposition, but that in the moment, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say and he'll help you do it. You can read about that. And I think uh, Matthew chapter 24, or Luke 24, somewhere in there, I can look that up for you later, but that's what Nehemiah does. So with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, If it pleases the king, and if you're pleased with me, so your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, well, how long will you be gone? When will you return? He wants to know the details. So Nehemiah says, after I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. Well, from the place that he's at to Jerusalem was about 500 miles as the crow flies. And for a journey, it would have taken about 800 miles. Nehemiah is going to go with a whole caravan of people. And if you assume they could maybe make about 10 miles a day, you're talking about a three and a half or a two and a half, almost three month journey one way. So he's going to be gone for quite a while. By the time he gets there and rebuilds the walls and then comes back, we might be looking at a year at least that he would be gone. Yet the king agrees. God showed Nehemiah favor. I also said to the king, but here's what you're going to see about Nehemiah. He was a good leader. You want to read about leadership, read the book of Nehemiah and watch how he leads and watch how he's sent by God and ultimately by God sending him through Artaxerxes, but he's strategic in the way he goes about it. Nehemiah doesn't just take off and go, woohoo, see you, man, I'm gone and take off on his own. But no, he's strategic. He knows when he gets there, he's going to face opposition He knows he needs to have some things lined up in order for this to work. So he says, if it pleases the king, let me also have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River. Instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. I can go. So if it's okay if I go, then can you help me and make sure I get there safely and accomplish the mission God's given me? And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I'll I'll need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. He counts the cost here before he goes. Well, the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. Nehemiah doesn't give any credit to himself. Man, I, I, I got that guy. I had the right words. I knew exactly what to say. And I convinced him. I lured him in. I got what I wanted. No, he said, God's gracious hand was upon me. All the credit goes to God for this. So then Nehemiah goes. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. God's good hand was upon him. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official 
heard of my arrival, they were displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So I arrived in Jerusalem three days later. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Then he goes on three days later. I slept out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I hadn't told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack of animals with us except the donkey I was riding. Nehemiah, again, he's a strategic leader. He gets provision before he goes, and then he's careful who he tells what's coming. He doesn't want it to be thwarted. A good leader can see ahead of the group they're leading, can't they? And sometimes they don't always share all the details because if you share them all up front, people freak out. That's Nehemiah. So after dark, I went out through the valley gate past the jackal's wall, jackal's well, excuse me, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gates and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall there before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken even to the the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. In other words, I hadn't even told the people who were going to help build the wall. But Nehemiah goes out strategically and he looks at what is the task in front of us. And he gathers all the information. He puts it together. And he's strategic. But all of this again is motivated by what? By his heart for God. By his heart for God. All the good things that happened, he never takes credit. He said it was because of God's good hand that was upon me. And his motivation to be obedient was his heart for God. Let me ask you, ask yourself, what is my motivation? The theme of the good hand of God carries on throughout the book of Nehemiah in chapter one and chapter two. One other observation about Nehemiah being sent. First off, that he was first focused on God. Second, his motivation for going was a heart for God. And third, Nehemiah was sent, and it should be noted that he willingly went into opposition. He was sent into opposition. Sometimes I think, oh, God's going to send me, and it's going to be great. Let me tell you, it will. It will. But that doesn't mean easy. Great doesn't mean easy. (laughs) Great means great. And usually it comes not easily, but with work. And Nehemiah is sent by God into opposition. Oh, come on. God, I trusted you. I know that you sent me, but why doesn't everything go great for me now? Why doesn't everything go exactly the way I want it to go? Well, God says, I never promised you that. I promised it'd be good in the end, but I also promised I'd be with you through all of it. So your only job is to be obedient and to go. To go. Even in the face of opposition. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. So finally, Nehemiah takes the time to start addressing the people there. You know very well what trouble we're in. You're in the midst of it. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. And then I told them, about how the great, there it is, the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. Let me tell you, this is every pastor's dream come true. You share a vision and everybody goes, yeah, let's do it. Doesn't happen that way all the time. But, But man, that's what happened for Nehemiah. And he was strategic in the way he went about it. And then when he told them the plan, everybody was fired up. So it says the end of verse 18, they began the good work. But I told you, this is in the midst of it. He was sent into opposition. See verse 19? But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, we hadn't heard of him yet, heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They asked. I replied, said Nehemiah, the God of heaven 
will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. See, by the end of this chapter now, we've been introduced to three enemies. Sambalat, who was north and he governed Samaria. Tobiah, he was to the east of Judah and, and he was an Ammonite. He governed Ammon and, and Geshem, the Arab, governed the area south, the area south of Judah. Well, by the time we get to chapter four, there's going to be a fourth opponent. And guess which side they're on? We've covered north, east, and south. They're going to be to the west. They're going to be to the west of him. When you get to chapter four, the Ashdodites, Ashdodites, who dwelled in the west of Judah. So Nehemiah was surrounded by opposition. Loved ones, when we get on mission, when we start following Jesus, guarantee you all sides are going to face opposition. Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to what? Hate you. But he promises, I'll be with you to the end. So with that promise, which Nehemiah had heard God make to Moses and to Joshua and David and many before him, Nehemiah also held on to that promise. And even in the face of opposition, he wasn't discouraged, but he pressed on knowing his God was with him. So again, we get up close after this observation. Are you easily discouraged? Or do you trust the God who has sent you? Do you trust him? He's a good dad. Listen, there's times all of us want to quit. There's times all of us want to throw in the towel. But at the end of the day, if our heart is focused on Jesus and our mission is motivated by that heart for Jesus, even when we're sent into opposition, we stand firm. Why? Because we've been sent. And come hell or high water, we know Jesus Christ will be by our side. We need not be discouraged. We have a friend in the battle. We'll look at number four now. Two more observations quickly as we close about Nehemiah. God used Nehemiah's obedience to accomplish the mission. God used Nehemiah's obedience to accomplish the mission. Well, as soon as you get into chapter three, all the way up through the first part of chapter seven, you start reading about how it starts out with Eliashab and they start doing what? Exactly what they said they'd do. They start accomplishing the mission. They start rebuilding the wall and they rebuild the wall first up to about knee height and then eventually the rest of the entire wall. And God uses their obedience to accomplish the mission. It would have been so easy for Nehemiah to say, okay, God, you sent me, you gave me all the resources, but now I got to deal with these people. Come on. Because he faced opposition on all four sides. You know where else he eventually faced opposition? From within. And he had people who were the Jewish people, give it up and go home. Be safe. Don't you see everything around you? Don't you see how this is never going to work? You're never going to get all the funds to build the wall. You're, you're never going to be able to do it in peace. You're, it's, just, it's not going to happen. You're all going to get killed. Why don't you just go home? Give it up. And those were the people on the inside. <laughs> but Nehemiah does what? Yeah, but you don't understand. God put this in my heart and he keeps going and they build it and they start building. You can read about it. They rebuild it 52 days, which is incredible. And in rebuilding it, it says that many of them had in one hand a trowel to build the wall and in their other hand, what? A sword to fight off the guys who might come and try to stop them from building it. Imagine if we uh, were, you were building the church, you know, what's it been 30 years ago now almost? Imagine if you were building it and you faced opposition, those of you who are here. So while you were building, you also were packing. And just in case somebody came, we're going to fight them off because we're going to build it. Because God told us to build it. That's them. And they're building. And eventually it says they even slept in their work clothes. And they just kept building and kept building and got it done. And God used their obedience, even in the, even in the face of things that just didn't make sense. So let me ask you. Ask yourself, am I obeying? In other words, am I going where God sends me? Am I doing what God tells me to do? You've been sent somewhere I haven't been sent. You work at a desk, you work on a line, you, you do whatever it is, you, you care for your kids at home. You've got a job and a ministry that I don't have. 
You're sent there by God. He determines the time and the place in which you live and the people you come in contact with. So when you get sent there, are you being obedient? Are you living for Jesus there? Even in the face of opposition? Because as you do, Jesus promises, I will build my church. I will. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, fifth observation that I notice, maybe a little unrelated, but still related. Number five, Nehemiah loved the community that he was sent to. He absolutely loved the community he was sent to. In those first two chapters that we read through, we see over and over that, that he, he loved his people. And again, in chapter two, verse five, it says, I replied, if it pleases the king, if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. He tells the king how it lies in ruins. He wants to go and help, ultimately, his community. And quite honestly, I think this might be one of the biggest takeaways for all of us to consider. Is that Nehemiah was a man who loved his city. Nehemiah was a man who loved his people. And he goes, and for the good of the city, there would have been Jews living there, but there would have been other people living there as well. Not just Jews. But, but people who followed other gods and for their good and for their well-being. And you're going to see Nehemiah, he gives so generously if you read the whole book. He gives incredibly generously out of his own pocket. Why? Because he's sent and he doesn't take money from the king. He gives his own money. Why? Because he's sent and he wants to bless the people and he wants to love his community and love his city. Let me ask you, do you love your community that you've been sent to? Where have you been sent Warsaw, Winona Lake, Napanee, New Paris, North Webster, Milford, Syracuse, Ligonier, Bremen. Where where are you sent? Leesburg. God determined the time and place that you would live. How are you being like Nehemiah in caring and loving your community for their good, for God's glory and your joy? See, here's the reality. If we're going to be sent... Being sent isn't, isn't going and beating people over the head with the gospel. <laughs> That's being a Bible thumper, right? Being sent is going on mission and loving my community, developing relationships so that I earn a hearing with them to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And the only way people are going to care what you know is if they know that you care. I know that's a cliche saying, but it's so true. Nehemiah loved his community. Do you? Some of you, myself included, I'm preaching to myself here too, but maybe you need to get more involved in the community. And in fact, if you, if you know, we totally wiped out a lot of programming in the church during the week a year ago, right? Like, well, what happened to that? And what happened to that? Well, the idea is that you and your 110 group would go get on mission and love the community that you've been sent to. Where are you serving it? Where are you loving it to win a hearing for Jesus Christ? Some of you, maybe you need to get involved in local government. Some of you, maybe you need to volunteer and serve at the school. Some of you, maybe you need to volunteer on the, defi- on the fire department or with the police department. Maybe you need to help grow the chamber of commerce in your community. Maybe you need to coach a little league team. Maybe you need to just get involved in another organization that's already serving our community. Like Kiwanis or Habitat or others like that. Maybe you need to go visit people who or in nursing homes, or sick, or in the hospital, or in prison, who are alone and could use someone to come and show Jesus' love to them. Maybe you need to pray for your leaders, and your servants, and our town council, and our police officers, and what is it? What's rising in your heart right now? God sent you here. How are you loving our community? My heart Tell you my heart. Remember Nehemiah came up and he shared his whole vision with people and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build the wall. Well, let me share you a little bit of my heart with you quickly as we close. My heart is that our church would be a church that if it vanished tomorrow, multiple communities around us would weep because of all the good that that church and God's people did for our community. Yeah. I don't know if I bought into the Jesus thing, but they did. They lived it out in a way that I've never seen a church live it out. 
Loved ones, if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, we need to live missionally. We need to live as missionaries in our community. For me, part of the way, okay, Josh, how are you doing it? Well, I've, I've volunteered. I serve now on the board for Habitat for Humanity. And that's on my own time. That's extra time I give. And that's a Christian organization that helps people who need a home. But what about you? Many of you, you serve in different organizations. I know some of you, you do this so well already. So don't, don't feel like the hammer coming down on you. I'm just saying use it now as an opportunity like Nehemiah did to bring the gospel to those places. Do it with all your might. Let me share one last thing with you before we close. Sing and close and call it a morning is September 20th is going to be our picnic. But this year we're going to do it a little different. This year what we're going to do is we're also that day going to have a ministry fair after the service. So we're going to have a picnic. We're going to have a ministry fair. There's going to be some booths set up in the fellowship hall for um, uh, organi- or places in the church where you can serve and get plugged in and all that good stuff. But we're also inviting whoever would want to come, organizations in our community who serve our community, and we're going to invite them in. They're going to hang out with us that morning. They'll be set up before the service, after the service. They'll eat with us, hang out. You can talk to them. And if God lays it on your heart as one sent into our community to go in Jesus' name and serve there, you're going to get opportunity to do that and to see where you could serve in our community. So maybe you're part of an organization and you'd like to set something up and just let people know places where they could get connected. Come talk to me. We'd love to have you. But by God's grace in the coming year, I hope we make great strides in loving our community. Amen. Let me pray, call it a morning, and uh, sing together. Father, thanks for Jesus, and uh, thank you that even as you call us to faith in him, then you, you turn around in your grace and you send us, really in many ways all in one motion. You call us to faith and then you send us on mission. And Jesus prayed, Father, in his last days on this earth, We can read about it, that that he prayed just as you had sent him into the world to love and care for us. So he's sending us into the world to love and care for it. And to bring the gospel and to bring hope to a community that needs it. Jesus, you've sent us here. You've sent us to Kosciuszko, Elkhart, Noble County. You've sent us to the small towns and communities there. Help us love them. Help us not to complain about them and... uh, complain about, oh, it's just such a small town. There's no, 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 no. You've sent us here in your good grace to love them. So help us speak well of our community and to cherish it and to build it just as Nehemiah built the walls of his. Father, I pray that in doing that over the next year, we would see many come to faith in you because they first experienced your goodness through your church. Pray for those this morning who've never trusted you, that they might even today turn in repentance and trust Jesus Christ with their life, turning from their sin to your grace. And Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.